Well, good morning. It is a pleasure to be with you and privilege. Always nice to be here with Matt and Leslie, who um, we were trying to figure out in the back. How are, is there a technical term for how we're related? Is it grandparents in law? Is it, and you just, at some point you just kind of get, you're just related um, through our, our children and grandchildren. But we're very thankful for them, thankful to be with you and uh, grateful to hear what you are doing, um, even in Matt's prayer uh, and his little introduction to it, trying to find the path forward. And uh, as the church, we're always moving forward because Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So the church has a mission, and the church is always on mission. So you're always looking for the path forward. So it's encouraging to hear that. And I hope that this morning, the message that um, the Lord has uh, led me to bring will serve you in that capacity. So if you have your Bible, a copy of the Scriptures, I'll be using the English Standard Version, which I understand might actually be in the pew in front of you. Uh, would you take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Romans? Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. And uh, we're going to look at verses 1 through verse 17 this morning. Verse 1 through verse 17 of Romans chapter 10. Would you please give your attention to the reading of God's Word? Romans chapter 10, verse 1 through 17. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is, and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who come to him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they've not all obeyed, our, obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he's heard from us? So... Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Would you bow with me for a brief word of prayer? Father, we pray that as your word is preached to your people today, the Lord Jesus Christ, by his spirit, would speak. 
and that faith would come from hearing the word of Christ. We pray that you would illumine hearts to believe in Christ, that you would transform lives to follow Christ. And we pray that you would equip your church to be on mission for Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Samuel Miller it was a pastor in New York City in the 19th century. He's one of my heroes from history. 1813, he moved from being a pastor in New York City to being a professor at what we call Old Princeton Seminary, when Princeton Seminary was still biblically faithful. And he served there from 1813 to 1835. He was a biblically faithful, dearly beloved pastor and professor. He was a leader in the 19th century American church. In 1835, he gives an address to an annual meeting of a foreign mission agency, and the address is called this, The Earth Filled with the Glory of the Lord. Would you listen for just a second to what Samuel Miller said at that address? Our plans, our efforts for promoting this object ought to be large, liberal, and ever-expanding. When we direct our attention to the spread of the gospel, our views, our prayers, our efforts are all too stinted and narrow. We scarcely ever lift our eyes to the real grandeur and claims of the enterprise in which we profess to be engaged. Listen to this. We are too apt to be satisfied with small and occasional contributions of service to this greatest of all causes, instead of devoting to it hearts that are truly enlarged, instead of desiring great things, expecting great things, praying for great things, and nurturing in our spirits that holy elevation and sentiment and affection which embraces in its desires and prayers the entire kingdom of God. That's a vision. That's a desire for Christ's cause in this world. Well, Romans chapter 10 is one of the great cause-shaping passages of Scripture where that vision is made compellingly clear. The Apostle Paul, when he writes this book, has not yet personally met the church in Rome. But he wrote this great letter with all of its great doctrine to secure their partnership on his mission beyond where he's already been. He's headed to Spain. He writes Romans to introduce his message, introduce his ministry to the church in Rome so they might support him and serve as a forward operating base, as it were, so that he can go on to Spain. So throughout the letter, he opens up his heart for Christ's mission. And in Romans chapter 10, he gives us his heart for Christ's mission. He gives us his confidence in Christ's message, and then he shows us his commitment to Christ's method. So here's the life and church transforming takeaway that I'd like you to get from this passage this morning. A heart compelled by Christ's mission will have confidence in Christ's message and be committed to Christ's method. A heart compelled by Christ's mission, will have confidence in Christ's message and be committed to Christ's method. If you got your Bible open, verse 1 shows us a heart that is compelled by Christ's mission. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. 
In another letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, Paul wrote this, Be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. Well, here, Paul is revealing to us how he imitates Christ, what moves him in ministry. He's disclosing his heart, and his heart is for lost people. Makes me think of that heart that was expressed by a man named Pete Fleming. 1950s, there were five families that went to Ecuador and South America to try to win a group of people called the Wudani, formerly called the Alcas, to Christ. One of the leaders of that mission was a man named uh, Jim Elliott. Well, Pete Fleming was also on that mission. And as they prepared to go, Pete Fleming wrote this in his diary. I am longing to reach the Wudani, the Aukas. If God give me the honor of proclaiming the name among them. Listen to what Fleming said. I would gladly give my life for that tribe. If only to see an assembly of those proud, clever, smart people gathering around a table to honor the sun. Gladly, gladly, what more could a life give? That's a heart compelled by Christ's mission. And that's the heart the Apostle Paul is expressing when he wrote to the church in Rome. In this case, he's expressing this for people who had actually had the benefit of God's Word, but who had refused to submit to God's Word, his kinsman, Israel. And he said this before. If you've got a Bible, if you just look over at chapter 9, verse 2, he said this, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed, cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, the kin my kinsmen according to the flesh. But it's not just for Israel that the Apostle Paul had this heart. This whole letter is actually bookended by his compulsion for the mission of Christ to the Gentiles. Just listen, chapter 1, verse 13 to 15. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I've often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That's the beginning of the book of Romans. Now listen to the end of the book of Romans. Acts 15, 15. He describes his ministry this way, to be a minister to, of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, listen, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Here's what's happening in Romans chapter 10, verse 1. The Holy Spirit is giving us a window into the heart of the spokesman who speaks for Jesus Christ. And what fueled his heart was a the, to, the mission to fulfill God's saving purposes. And if we were to go to the end of the book of Revelation, we would see that that saving purpose is an innumerable multitude from every tribe and people who will produce a harvest of eternal praise to the glory of God. You know, that promise doesn't just bookend the book of Romans. It bookends the whole Bible. 
All the way back in the book of Genesis, the Lord made this promise to Abraham. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. Watch. In, all, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God's plan and promise was to multiply his people from one man to all peoples. And if time allowed, we could trace that promise all the way through the Bible. We come to the New Testament, and the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, tell, 120 tells us this, that all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. In Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham comes to the Gentiles, Galatians chapter 3, verse 14. This apostle who's expressing his heart for Christ's mission knows and believes because God's revealed it to him that it is through faith in Jesus that the gracious gospel blessings promised to Abraham are now being poured out amongst the nations. And at the end, in the book of Revelation, John tells us this, he sees the vision of the end, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes, all peoples, all languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, crying with a loud voice. Listen to this, all nations, from the Middle East, from Asia, from Russia, from Ukraine, from the United States, from South America, people from all nations saying salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. What a glorious vision. What a compelling vision. That vision compelled another of the great leaders of the 19th century American church, a man named Archibald Alexander, to say this. If the Christian church felt her obligations to her Lord and Redeemer as she ought, the whole body would be like a great missionary society whose chief object was to spread the gospel over the whole world. My friends, you want a pathway forward? That's it. The bookends of the Bible, the bookends of the book of Romans, the heart of Christ's spokesman right in the middle. The point is that a biblically patterned and a biblically passioned church will have a heart compelled by Christ's mission. Secondly, this morning, I want you to notice that a heart for Christ's mission is grounded in confidence in Christ's message. A heart for Christ's mission is grounded in confidence in Christ's message. You know, the history of the church is littered with examples of preachers and churches who use a concern for mission as an excuse to start messing with the gospel message. I recall many years ago now sitting across from an old friend who was sadly rapidly departing from, a biblical, from biblical truth. And as I sought across that table to persuade him to come back, he leaned in and he said this to me in this very intoned in this way, you see, John, my concern is missional. Meaning that the straight form of the biblical message just doesn't work in a contemporary context. And my response was, well, my concern is missional too. And if you don't have a biblical message, you don't have a biblical mission. That's a great challenge in the field of missions. In the field of missions, contextualizing for, under, for understanding, missionaries are tempted to adjust their message in ways that are plausible and safe and non-offensive for the culture. And it's a great challenge here in America where the temptation is to make the message 
about the reigning social orthodoxy or to affirm lifestyles the Bible confronts and condemns in the name of not turning anybody off. But contextualizing on our mission doesn't mean changing the message to terms that the culture demands. It means preaching the unchanging, life-changing gospel in terms the language the culture understands. So in verses 2 to 13, Paul gives us a description and a defense of the gospel message that Jesus gave him to accomplish his mission. Now, verses 2 to 13 is a complex, condensed, razor-sharp argument that defends his message as growing right out of the Old Testament scriptures. And so for the sake of a one-installment sermon, let me give you the tweetable, or is it, what is it now, the exable version of what verses 2 to 13 tells us. Here what you get in verse 2 to 13 in one soundbite. Here's what it is. Don't miss it. Acquittal of guilt and acceptance with God is based not on your work at righteousness, but on Christ's righteousness alone received by faith alone. That's what he says in verses 2 to 13. It's not about your religious background. It's not about your moral performance. It's not about your social status. It's not about your ethnic roots. No matter where you're from, no matter what you've done, no matter who your people are, acquittal of guilt and acceptance with God is based not on your work at righteousness, but on Christ alone received by faith alone. Because what he says is Christ revealed in the scriptures is God's righteousness for everyone who believes in him. Take a quick look, if you would, with me at the apostles' argument and the description and defense. Verses 2 to 4, he says that the people who are on his heart are the disobediently unrighteous because they trust their own self-made righteousness rather than the righteousness God alone gives. My friends, there is a futile, false righteousness that humans seek to create through our own character and works. It's a human, man-made righteousness. And then there's the righteousness of God, the righteousness that reveals the character of God, the righteousness that is given by God in Jesus. And that's the only righteousness that gets us acquitted of our guilt. It gets us accepted before our God. See, here's the problem. We are zealous to stand on our own performance and work as something that God should approve of us for. See, self-righteous zeal can actually be very religious or it can be very secular. If you're a religious person, it looks like trust in your own zeal and your own conformity to the man-made religious code and conduct I trust my diligence at keeping religious routines. I trust my obedience to the moral codes to put God in debt to accept me. But if you're a secular post-Christian per, uh, person, it can look like being passionate for the new social orthodoxy. I'm on the right side of history. I'm enlightened and I'm engaged in the right social causes. So if there's a God, he must be on my side because I'm socially responsible. 
Here's the point of verses two to four. It doesn't matter how zealous you are in your man-made code of righteousness, whether it's a secular code or a religious code. If you're not trusting in Jesus, you are blind to God's righteousness, and in fact, you're rebellious to it. And your efforts at your own righteousness, no matter how zealous, do not and cannot establish the righteousness that God requires of us. The righteousness of God that leads to salvation is the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone that God gives to us by his grace alone as we exercise faith alone. If you don't hear anything else this morning, please hear this. The only way to be accepted by God and acquitted of our guilt by God is to receive the righteous man, Jesus Christ. To believe that Jesus is God's sinless son and to turn from your sin and to trust Jesus to be your righteousness because he died for our sin and our guilt on his cross and was raised from the dead to declare us as righteous. So for everyone who believes, Christ is the end of attempts at salvation based on the law. Christ is where the believer puts their trust. The believers have said, no more trusting my own efforts, no more trusting my own merits. Righteousness is Christ alone. So let me ask you a question this morning. Where are you with Jesus Christ? Have you seen Christ? crucified for you, raised for you, and have you turned from your sin and your own efforts at righteousness and embraced him and trust Christ alone as your righteousness before God? That's the message that the Apostle Paul put his confidence in. And the great good news is what he gives to us down a little later in verses 9 to 13, where he takes two Old Testament scriptures, Isaiah 28, 16, and Joel 2, 32, and he gives us this great glorious gospel promise. Everyone who believes in him, did you hear that? Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Maybe you're sitting there this morning and you're saying, but you've got no idea what I've done. You don't know my background. You don't know my people. You don't know where I'm from. There has to be some kind of spiritual hurdle to jump over. There's got to be some sacrificial hoop, some kind of penance that I have to do, a hocus pocus I have to perform for me. Here's the good news. No. God says in his word, Believe in Jesus Christ raised from the dead and God will give you his righteousness. That's the message that you can have confidence in for your salvation. And by the way, it's the message that you can have confidence in for the salvation of, of people that God has put on your heart just like the Apostle Paul. Do you have friends who don't know Christ? Do you have family members who don't know Christ? What has the power to win that person from darkness and bring them to acquittal of guilt and acceptance with God? Here's what Paul says it is in Romans 1.16. The gospel is the power of God for salvation 
to everyone who believes. So, a heart compelled by Christ's mission, confidence in Christ's message, third and last. I want you to see that that message gets distributed through Christ's method, and we have to be committed to Christ's method. That's what Paul gives us in verses 14 to 17. A heart compelled on Christ's mission and confident in Christ's message starts to ask the how question. If the gospel is the power of God for salvation, if, if, if all you got to do is believe in Christ, how do we get that gospel message out? That's what Paul does in verses 14 to 17. He asks four how questions. Did you notice it? How are they to call on him in whom they do not believe? How are they to believe him whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? So here's the mission-hearted apostle asking the how question, and he answers it with the means and method God has ordained to call his people to his son. You want to hear the method? Here's the method. Christ sends a preacher. The preacher preaches Christ. People hear Christ. They believe Christ. They call on Christ. And everyone who calls on Christ gets saved. That's the way it works. And if that little sequence of questions teaches us anything in the priority, it, it teaches us the priority of preaching the word and sending preachers to preach the word in Christ's cause. Because the preaching of the gospel is the way Christ himself accomplishes his mission with his people. Perhaps you remember way back when we read the text together this morning, and as I was reading it through, you noticed maybe in the middle of verse uh, 14 that we skipped a little of in the ESV there. And you thought, well, the guest preacher needs new glasses, or he briefly fell asleep on his own sermon when he came to that point. But he's a guest preacher, so we'll just politely overlook it. But it was actually quite deliberate. The New American Standard has a better translation on verse 14. And the ESV, it gives you the footnote in the, uh, footnote in the option in the footnotes. The way it should be translated is, how are they to believe in him, not of whom they've never heard, but how are they to believe in him whom they've never heard? See, the apostle knows it's actually Christ himself and Christ whom they believe when he is preached from the scriptures. So in verse 17, when it says, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, the word of Christ is not merely the word about Christ. It's actually the word of Christ, the word that Christ speaks, Christ's word. Here's what that means. Through the preacher Christ sends, when he faithfully opens the scripture, Christ preaches still. Do you know how Jesus executed his mission when he was on earth? I was just there in May with a group of students standing there in Nazareth. And Jesus goes to the synagogue in Nazareth, his home church, and he stands up to preach, and he's handed the scroll of Isaiah, and he reads from Isaiah chapter 61. And as he declares himself to be the Messiah, 
and he shows them how he's going to accomplish his mission as Messiah. Do you remember what he said in that sermon in his home church in Luke chapter 4? He said this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he told his disciples, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Jesus was sent as a preacher to preach. And after he's raised from the dead, how does he tell his disciples to extend the mission beyond Palestine? Luke 24 tells us. He walks with his disciples on the road to Emmaus. He shows them that the whole Old Testament scripture points to him in his crucifixion and his resurrection. And then he says this to them, Luke 24, repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. You are witnesses of these things. Jesus' method in his earthly ministry was to preach. And after he's raised from the dead, his mandate to his disciples was to preach as a witness to him. Now let me show you something remarkable. Paul knew that when those Christ sent to preach, the risen Christ preached. There's this remarkable statement from the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 26. Acts chapter 26, Paul is making his defense before King Agrippa. And in Acts 26, 23, he says, he says this. Listen to this carefully. I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but the, what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, the whole Old Testament scriptures, that Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light, both to our people and to the Gentiles. Did you hear it? Who proclaimed the light? He did. How did Christ, after being raised from the dead, proclaim light to the Gentiles? Through the preachers that he sent. He does the same thing in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, he's talking about the Jew and Gentile being brought together in the church in one body. And then he says this, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Listen carefully again. And he came and preached to you who were far off, the Gentiles. Jesus never left Palestine in his earthly ministry. How did Jesus preach peace to the Gentiles who were far off? Through the preacher that he sent. To the Gentiles. The risen Christ came and preached through the preacher that he sent. This prompted the old Puritan author Thomas Goodwin to put it this way, because he is with us ministers in delivering the gospel to the end of the world, yea, Jesus Christ has put his pulpit in heaven to this day. Therefore it says in Hebrews 12, do not refuse him who this speaks from heaven. So why do I take you through that? My friends, that's why the faithful preaching of the Word of God has the power to raise the dead. That's why the faithful preaching of the Word of God has the power to sanctify Christians. That's why the faithful preaching of the Word of God has the power to mobilize the church on its mission in this present darkness. Because in the faithful preaching of the Word of God, by His Spirit, Christ speaks. Christ gives life. Christ sanctifies. And Christ is with His church to the end of the age. So let me draw three very brief conclusions, and then I'm done. 
Number one, you have to pray for your pastors to be preachers and provide them the time and resources they need to be preachers, and you need to come and listen to the word. The priority that Christ puts on the preaching of the word means that preachers need support and they need prayer to be preachers of the word. And when people come to church, they need to listen to the word, to listen for Christ speaking to them in the word. If this passage teaches us anything as churches in America, it teaches us that we have to reform our expectations, our priority, and our investment in the preaching of the Word of God and our confidence in the preaching of the Word of God. Number two, may I suggest to you that it means that churches in the name of Jesus need to intentionalize sending preachers. We need a whole army of Christ-centered, spirit-filled, scripture-expositing preachers. Can I ask you a question? Have you noticed our world's in trouble? We, we are in an absolute vacuum, leadership-wise nationally and globally. And the change that we need, the answer that we need is not coming from Washington. It's not coming from Wall Street. It's not coming from Hollywood, and it's not coming from Harvard. It's coming from the Word of God. And to get the Word of God to our nation and to the nations, we need a whole new army of Christ-centered, Spirit-filled, Scripture-expositing preachers of the Word of God. And the only way we get those is the church sends them. Seminaries where I teach have the privilege of training the people that you send, but we don't send them, you do. At the end of the month, we will mark, I think most of us, an anniversary of what was called that, that world-changing movement called the Protestant Reformation. And when that Protestant Reformation was at its height, there was a need for pastors. There was a need for preachers. John Calvin was in Geneva, and he wrote to the church in France and said, send us your wood, and we'll send you back arrows. The church needs to take the young men that God is raising up in their midst, and parents and grandparents and pastors need to be prepared to invest in them and to send them so that they can be those beautiful feet that preach the gospel. I mentioned earlier our, one of my heroes, Pete Fleming and Jim Elliott. Well, his wife, Jim Elliott's wife, Elizabeth Elliott, who was there on the mission field with those other families as their husbands died on a beach in Ecuador trying to bring the gospel to an unreached people. Elizabeth Elliot wrote a book called Through Gates of Splendor. And inside that book, she wrote this, the words of a hymn 
They say this, Give of thy sons to bear the message glorious. Give of thy wealth to speed them on their way. Pour out thy soul for them in prayer victorious. And all thou spendest, Jesus will repay. Her husband Jim, in a less eloquent way, had previously written an appeal to the next generation to give themselves to the cause of Christ. Here's what Jim Elliott wrote. Our young men are going into the professional fields because they don't feel called to the mission field. We don't need a call. We need a kick in the pants. We must begin thinking in terms of going out and stop weeping because they won't come in. May God send us forth. Number one, you have to prioritize the preaching of the word. Number two, we have to send those to be preachers. Number three, and this is with this I'm done, every believer in Jesus Christ should take up the privilege and responsibility to carry the word of Christ to their unsaved neighbors. I started with one of my historical heroes, Samuel Miller. Let me end with one of my biblical heroes, the woman at the well. Do you remember that great story, the woman at the well, where Jesus comes? And he brings her to faith in himself. He, he doesn't soft-pedal her sin. He calls her out on her sin so that she will run right to him and he can give her living water. And I love what happens at the end of the story. She goes back to the village and utterly devoid of shame says, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. She becomes an evangelist to the entire village in Samaria. And as that village comes out to Jesus, he says to his disciples, look up and see that the fields are white for harvest. And as the village hears him preach, they turn to her and they say, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, but we have heard and we now know this is the Savior of the world. My friends, that's the privilege that every single person who's had their sins forgiven by Jesus has. Come and hear. Come and see a man who told me and then forgave me of everything that I ever did. A heart compelled by Christ's cause will have confidence in Christ's mission and be committed to Christ's method. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, how we thank you that your mercy is indeed more. We thank you that it's stronger than darkness and it's new every morning. And thank you that for so many in this room that has been our experience, that by your grace alone, in Christ alone, you have given us his righteousness through faith alone. Lord, I pray for Grace Church, and I pray that you would raise up from it part of that new army of Christ-centered, spirit-filled, scripture-expositing preachers of the word of God. I pray, Lord, that you would protect and prosper and bless her pastor, I pray that you would protect and prosper and bless this pulpit. And Lord Jesus, may you make this church a shining light in this city. 
Now, Lord Jesus, we pray that if there would be one person within the sound of this sermon today who has not yet believed in the Lord Jesus, we pray that you, as you did that woman at the well, as you did for me, as you've done for so many of us, would you give the grace of faith and repentance that they might be acquitted of their guilt and that they might be accepted by God in Christ alone, in whose name we pray. Amen.